Our Father, we thank you for this morning and the opportunity we've had so far already to worship you, to exalt in the gift of your Son. We pray now as we approach your word and we look at the teaching of Jesus, that you would please humble us, teach us, and equip us to obey you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you know it or not, but the Bible has a lot to say about riches, about money, about wealth. In fact, there's more verses on wealth and riches than there are on prayer and faith combined. Jesus taught more on finances than he did on heaven and hell. And our passage this morning is a case in point. So I'd invite you to turn in the Gospel of Luke to Luke chapter 12 as we continue our ongoing exposition of this Gospel. We are now faced with Jesus' teaching on wealth and possessions. With all this talk in the Bible about money, clearly there's something about this topic that God doesn't want us to miss. And I believe it's something that the 21st century church must sit up and pay attention to. By all accounts, we live in the most prosperous age of world history. In addition to that, we live in the most prosperous country, in the most prosperous age of world history. Indeed, America is the richest of the rich. In 2017, a family of four with an annual income of about $25,000 was at the U.S. federal poverty level. But did you know that when you compare that income with people around the world, this family that is at the federal poverty level in this country is among the top 2% of the wealthiest people of the world. And those who make the median income in the U.S. are among the top one-fifth of 1% of the world's wealthy. Indeed, We live in the wealthiest country, in the wealthiest age. But of course, most of us don't feel rich, do we? Why don't we? Well, I suggest to you it's because of the endless comparison of those around us. But more than that, it's an issue in our hearts, an issue known as materialism. Materialism is an idol of the heart that causes us to crave for more money, for more stuff, for more status, for more financial security. And materialism shows itself all over in our society. Materialism shows itself in our often daily shopping on Amazon. You know the, the impulse, right? You think of something, you go, oh, I wonder how much that costs. And so you pull out your phone, you tap on the Amazon app, and you just start shopping. Or maybe it's some other app or some other website. We just can seemingly shop every day. Of course, it didn't take the internet to cause Americans to shop. You simply look at the real estate that is devoted to malls and outlets, and you know that America loves to spend money. Materialism rears its head also in the workaholism of the American worker. Men and women are constantly pushing for more hours for trying to make more money as they compete with others for the next promotion. They believe if they could make just a little bit more money, they could be happy. 
But as John D. Rockefeller, the world's first billionaire, when asked how much money was enough, he answered, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. That is materialism. Materialism can show itself in our concern over our investment portfolio or even in the money that we want to bequeath to the next generation. We stress about money. We want to make sure that we have enough. We don't want to miss out maybe on the next stock, up-and-coming stock opportunity or maybe it's the next cryptocurrency that might make it big. America's fascination with living comfortably in retirement reveals the hold materialism has upon us. Materialism also shows itself in our constant awareness of the new things that other people have around us. And of course, it's new things that we ourselves don't have and that we would like to have if it so happened that we could have it. It doesn't matter whether it's a new car, new house, bigger house, remodeled house. Could be a motorhome, a boat, vacation house. Could be trendy clothes, trendy accessories. Could be new technological devices or gadgets. Or maybe it's the vacations, the size of vacations, the length of vacations, the destinations. Of course, we can tend to think that those who accumulate all those nice things are the materialistic ones, but the fact that we see them and covet them ourselves shows that our hearts are no different. Materialism is all around us, and it's spiritually deadly. As Randy Alcorn has said, there is a powerful relationship between our true spiritual condition and our attitude and actions concerning money and possessions. Now, speaking of Randy Alcorn, I am shamelessly stealing a title of one of his books for my title today, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. And I'd recommend this to you if you're looking for a full treatment of what the Bible says about money, possessions, investments, eternity, all those sorts of things. It's a great biblical study. Uh, this is in our church library, as well as if that book seems too daunting to you because it is a big, thick book. But it's more resource, right? Reference, reference point. Um, but I encourage you to read The Treasure Principle. Another great read. It's short, it's to the point, and it gets to the point of where, where is our treasure. And his, he's written a lot on this topic and is therefore helpful. I'd recommend those to you. This week and next, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 34. And I believe that these verses comprise a single unit together, which is why we're covering them in a two-part miniseries here. Jesus concludes the first part of the passage in verse 21 by talking about treasure, and he concludes the second part in verses 33 and 34 talking about treasure. This whole passage is about the treasure of our hearts and how it's manifested in our money and our possessions. And so let's see what Jesus has for us today as we read his word, Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 34. It says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. 
And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you who are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also." Again, over this week and next, we're going to look at three lessons that we can glean from this text about money, possessions, and eternity. As Christ's disciples, we must seek to follow Jesus' teaching on this vital issues, these vital issues and not follow the world. Because if we don't, it could mean spiritual suicide. This morning, we'll look at the first of these three lessons, and it's this. Beware of materialism. Very simply, Beware of materialism. We see this in verses 13 through 21. Now, as we said, materialism is simply a preoccupation with things and a desire for more. In verse 15, Jesus identifies it as covetousness or greed. And Jesus is prompted to address this sin by a request by a man in the crowd. And so first, we'll look at the setting of this in verses 13 and 14, and then we'll look at the particular teaching Jesus has for us on covetousness or materialism. First, the setting, verses 13 and 14. Notice it says that someone in the crowd spoke to him. Seeing a break in Jesus' teaching, he decided to butt in and raise his hand and, and ask a question. He wanted Jesus to get him what he wants. And so he says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Clearly, he sees Jesus as an authoritative figure, as a rabbi, hence teacher, he calls him here, a sign of respect. It was not uncommon for disputes to be taken to the rabbis and for them to seek, since they knew the word of God so well, for them to be able to decipher what they should do. This man thought Jesus would be the right person to help him get what he wanted. This is all we know about the situation, but we can kind of stitch together a very probable uh, scenario. Most likely, this is a younger brother. He's got an older brother. Their father has died, left them with the inheritance, and it's probably the land that the father owned. 
This younger brother wants to carve off a piece of that, wants to sell it, wants to separate from his brother so that the inheritance is not grouped together with his older brothers. But the older brother doesn't want to do that. And so he comes seeking to gain justice from Jesus. And so his, he very well here could be asking for something that is rightfully his. But Jesus sees through this man's request to his heart. And so even if justice, true justice, is part of his request, he's driven by a deeper and more insidious desire, and that is greed. In verse 14, Jesus rebukes the man, simply calls him man, dude, dude, who do you th think I am? Who made me a judge or arbiter over you? I believe when Jesus comes back to reign upon this earth, he is going to be the true king of this earth, the true judge of all things. He's going to be the righteous judge, and in one sense, he will act in this, he will act in this way, but this is not the time for that. Right now is not the time. In fact, what looms before Jesus right now is the cross. Jesus knows that the cross is before him, and so right now he doesn't fill this, this role. But he sees in the man's request an opportunity to springboard into a teaching on money, possessions, and eternity. And the first thing that he addresses is covetousness, or as we're calling it this morning, materialism. And so with the when verses 15 through 21, I want us to see seven dangers of materialism that we need to be on guard for, that we can be on guard for the sin in our hearts, in our lives. The first danger of materialism this text alerts us to is that materialism lies about the good, what makes the good life. Materialism lies about what makes the good life. Notice Verse 15, and he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Notice the double command, take care, be on guard. This emphasizes the importance of what Jesus is saying here. He wants all who follow him to be sensitive, super sensitive to all forms of greed or covetousness. As we've talked about, this covetousness is a desiring for more, a craving for what others have, a, a, accumulating more stuff, more money, more possessions. Jesus knows that this is a temptation that can easily ensnare our souls. And so he says to be on guard against it. And so church, we must guard against materialism like a king who posts sentries all around his castle walls to watch for an invading force. We must guard against materialism like a doctor who's scanning a body to show for any signs of infection. We must be alert to see if this would creep up in any way in our lives. Jesus helps us to do that by ripping off the mask of materialism. He shows that it's not all that it claims to be. Life, he says, does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Jesus is telling us here that the good life, the place of peace and joy and happiness is not found in accumulation. It's not found in stocking up more things. It's not found in bigger bank accounts, bigger 401ks, bigger houses or cars. He who dies with the most toys does not win. The purpose and goal and satisfaction of a life well lived comes from knowing Christ and living for his glory. But like a fish that doesn't know it's wet, we live 
all around, with materialism all around us. Now, we generally know when we're being sold something, but we are not often aware of the materialism that's at work in our own hearts. It creeps up on us. And so to help us, I want to read a list to you from the 17th century Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter. He wrote 21 signs of covetousness. And I've translated them into modern English for us. And, and we're not spending time on these. I just want to give these to you to, and let them uh, sit, sit on you. Uh, don't try to write them down. I'm going to go too fast. But if you get the sermon notes and and I, I, we send out sermon notes after uh, on Mondays or, or Tuesdays, and so you can get the list then. So Rich, the first uh, sign of covetousness he lists is, is we're covetous when we prefer prosperity over God. We're covetous when we see our money as provision for our own flesh instead of as assistance to serve God. We're covetous when we want more than we need. We're covetous when we crave too much the things of this earth. We're covetous when we worry about the future. We, we're covetous when we complain about our poor condition, even though we have what we need for each day. We're covetous when our thoughts more quickly run to think about the things of this world than the things of the Lord. We're also covetous when we talk more easily about our prosperity in the world than the prosperity of our souls. We're covetous when our business and work in the world crowds out responsibilities to God, such as church attendance and Bible reading. We're covetous when we are overly depressed or upset over financial losses and injuries from other men. We're covetous when we'd rather sue someone over losses, even though greater harm to the cause of Christ will result. We're covetous when, in our troubles, we find more comfort in our financial security than in our trust in God and the hope of heaven. We're covetous when we are more thankful for physical blessings than we are for spiritual blessings, such as salvation in the church. We're covetous when we are content and pleased with prosperity and possessions, yet have a miserable and unsanctified soul. We're covetous when we provide more for the worldly needs of our children than their spiritual ones, when we rejoice, rejoice more in their bodily than spiritual prosperity, when we are troubled more for their poverty than their ungodliness or sin. We're covetous when we refuse to give to help a brother in need or give unwillingly or sparingly. We're covetous when we acquire wealth through sinful means such as cheating, lying, flattery, or anything else that goes against our consciences. We're also covetous when we don't want others to be blessed with prosperity unless we are as well. We're covetous when we schmooze with wealthy and powerful people to get benefits from them and envy those who receive what we do not. We're covetous when we cannot let go of our money for the sake of Christ, his church, and his gospel. And lastly, we are covetous when our riches are used for the pampering of our flesh and extravagant provision of our prosperity and nothing but some inconsiderable crumbs or driblets are employed for God and his servants nor used to further us in his service and towards laying up a treasure in heaven. What these examples show is that covetousness, greed, and materialism can take on many different forms. But friends, we must be on guard against all such things. Well, watch out. Be alert for this sin to creep into your heart, into your family, into your kids' hearts. We must be on guard for this. 
Because at the root of the problem of materialism is idolatry, friends. It's not just a slight misstep. It is a misallegiance. It's, a giving, it's a giving our allegiance to the created instead of the creator. It's not loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's loving the things of the earth. It's seeking joy and satisfaction in things instead of in Christ. John Calvin wrote, When riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority. Randy Alcorn stated it this way. He said, None of us can enthrone the true God unless in the process we dethrone our other gods. If Christ is not Lord over our money and possessions, then he is not our Lord. The good life is not found in worshiping idols. It's not found in the abundance of possessions. The good life is found only in Christ. The second danger of materialism this text gives us is that materialism can arise in the midst of legitimate enterprise. Materialism can arise in the midst of legitimate enterprise. Verse 16, Jesus launches into telling a parable. A parable was a literary device to teach a point often drawn from normal everyday Israeli life that the people would understand. He introduces us in this parable to a rich man. Look at it, verse 16. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. So here we have a man who's already rich by some account, but the riches continue to increase. He continues to get more stuff. His crops produce. And so now he's got a problem. He doesn't have enough storage. Look at verse 17. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. So naturally, he says, well, I need to, uh, God's clearly blessing me, and so I need to uh, accommodate this blessing, and so I'll, I'll build bigger barns. Verse 18. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Now, up to this point, this man's actions are completely understandable and natural, are they not? I mean, this is like a normal course of a businessman or a successful farmer. You'd expect that when there was great profit or there's producing of crops that you would just accommodate that because clearly God's blessing you want to be a good steward of all that that's coming out of the field and so you build bigger barns and the point is that he was probably a shrewd farmer he ran his farm well he didn't earn his fortune through dishonest means or through immoral practices he's worked hard and God has blessed the output and yet it's in the midst of this honest labor that greed and materialism crept into his heart Randy Alcorn soberingly states this. He says, The most troubling aspect of this parable is that if we met this man, most of us would commend him for his foresight. Yet foresight is exactly what he lacked. He may have planned 20 years ahead, but he failed to plan 20 million years ahead. And as it turned out, he didn't even have 20 years before facing God in judgment. He had closer to 20 minutes. This is a warning to us. Materialism is not just a cancer that affects the crooked and the dishonest. It can affect the hardworking and the moral. While we are engaged in good and right work, we can find our hearts enraptured with another lover other than Christ. We can easily become discontent with what we have. We can find ourselves envying, envying what others have, and we crave to get more, and we scheme on how we can do that. Friends, we must watch out for materialism. And greed because it can arise in our hearts in the midst of very legitimate things. 
But there's a third danger this passage warns us about. Materialism provides a false sense of security. Verse 19. He says, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. So after executing his business plan, he, this man then speaks to his soul. He sits back and sees his barns full, these brand new sparkling barns full of things, and, and he then thinks about what his next steps are going to be. And Jesus employs this device of a man speaking to himself, not just saying what he thought, as he did earlier, but here it's actually the man speaking to his soul. And there's a sense in which we're supposed to chuckle a little bit at this. Jesus is showing the irrationality, the foolishness of a man who sits down and consults with his soul and his business partner is his soul. And he says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for yourself for many years. Here, we see a switch. If, per se, up to this point, he was a God-fearing man going through legitimate work, there's a switch that's happened here. The prosperity has caused him to switch. Rather than simply recognizing the prosperity and the blessing that God has given him in his fields, he's now no longer trusting in God. He's now finding security in his big barns and in his amount of wealth. His trust has shifted from God to his prosperity. This is very easy thing to happen for all those who become wealthy. It's easy to trust in our riches. It's easy to believe that what we have is what we'll have in perpetuity. And to believe that the future is secure and is sure because of what we have today in the present. But the Bible is so clear that riches are a faulty means of security, friends. They're unreliable and they can be gone as quickly as they come. Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5 say this. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. The riches go as quickly as they come. Proverbs 27, verse 24 simply says, Riches do not last forever. The security of our money is a false security. This man believed he'd be well taken care of in the future because of the wealth he had accumulated. Again, I can't help but think that many in our society trust in their riches for their security just like this rich fool. This principle can surface, again, as we're thinking about the future, can surface as we think about retirement. People that are trusting in their nest egg that they've been storing up, trusting their savings instead of trusting their sovereign God. Now, of course, while it's prudent to save for a time when we can no longer work and bring in an income, it's wrong to place our hope, our faith, and our comfort in that savings. Our hope and our trust in any stage of life through any time is in God alone. Amen? 
We must trust him. I believe this principle of trusting in financial security also shows itself in the young of our society today as they plan the first few decades of their career. Instead of trusting God to provide as they move towards marriage and children, instead they bow down before the God of money and seek its will, which says that you must have enough money before you can get married. You need to have enough money before you can have children. They think that they can't have children until they've climbed the corporate ladder. They're making six figures. They've bought a home. This way of thinking, I believe, reveals a reliance on money for false security. God is the only one we can depend on for the future. He is the only one that provides for us. Why is that? Because, friends, he's the only thing in this entire universe that's unchanging. He's the only thing that does not change from day to day. This world is constantly in flux. This world is always changing. We're changing. The world is changing, as we know. We must trust God, the only thing that is fixed in the heavens. But let's continue to examine this parable for the fourth danger of materialism that we can draw from it. The fourth danger is that materialism provides a false promise of pleasure. Materialism provides a false promise of pleasure. Look at the second half of 19. He says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. In light of the security that this man believes he has, he then re re reveals his four-part mission for the remaining years of his life. What is he now setting out to do? He's setting out to relax, to eat, to drink, be merry. No longer needing to work, he can devote himself to leisure and to pleasure. And he's going to pursue those plans with gusto. He's coaching, having a little pep talk with his soul. All right, here we go. Come on, let's go. Let's dive into relax. Dive into eat, drink, and be merry. We're going to be happy. He's already got his Hawaiian shirt on and the lay around his neck. But man, doesn't this four-part mission... This desire that he has to spend his years sound like someone in our own day? This, the slated activities that are given here are what our society lives for. We desire to live for leisure, live for pleasing ourselves. The whole advertising industry is towards us buying for ourselves. I believe it's clearly seen in the industry that has risen up trying to convince Americans to retire in ease. The pitch goes something like this. You've worked hard for many years. You now deserve to enjoy life, to spend it on yourself. You should be able to live out your days in ease and relaxation because life is all about you and you have earned up enough account for you to be able to spend it on yourself now. And of course, American Christians can easily buy into this as much as our secular neighbors. But the problem is, is when we buy into that, we get on the same path as this rich fool in this parable. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with retiring in the sense of ending your main employment and switching to a 
a time when you can no longer do that. But biblically, there is never a time in our lives where we are simply living for our own pleasures. There's never to be a time in our life where we simply live for us because we belong to Christ. We're His. We live for Him and His glory. And so because we have all have this thing at the end of our lives put before us as this, this, this carrot before us of, of a life of ease that we're all straining towards through all of our years of working life, then we learn to place that before us in little increments all along the way. And so the phrase, we work for the weekend. We work for the vacation. We simply are looking for ease and relaxation. And we work in order to get to those points of leisure rather than the rest as a time to reinvigorate, to invest back in God-honoring work. See, that's how God envisioned relaxation. That's how God envisioned recreation, was that we might be recreated through that rest, that we might engage again back into the, the work that God has given us to do. We were put upon this earth to work. It's a good and glorious thing. And we, get, we work for the benefit of others. Of course, it's no wonder that uh, young people, right, we can look at teenagers and say, oh, they're so materialistic. They're so hedonistic. They simply live after themselves. But who have they been watching? Who have they been learning this from? They're not more hedonistic than other age groups. They have just less responsibilities that hold them back from pursuing those pleasures. America believes that the opportunity to relax, to eat, drink, and be merry is a fundamental right. As a nation, we've forgotten that we will be held accountable for how we live. And so this leads us to the fifth danger of materialism that we see in this text. The fifth danger is that materialism hides one's accountability to God. Materialism hides one's accountability to God. Verse 20. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. Jesus abruptly brings in God into the story. The character who has been very absent from this man's life so far. He's once again faced, or finally, I should say, faced with God. And Jesus here vocalizes the voice of the Father who says to him, Fool. This doesn't mean that this man was stupid, but rather that he was morally bankrupt. He'd been living his life with no relation to God and without reference to the possibility of a future judgment. And for that, he is a fool. He thought he had another 20 years, another great amount of time. But God reveals that this night his soul is requiring him. His reckoning is now. He went to great efforts to prepare for his physical needs, but completely neglected his spiritual needs. He planned for his temporal future, but did not plan for his eternal future. And all of that becomes clear at the moment of judgment. The moment that we are face to face with God, the moment that all of this world fades away and we're left standing before the judge, everything becomes clear. What has value? What is of necessity for us? When we're face to face with the judge, the priorities are made clear. And this is why I believe why texts like this are found in Scripture. We need to get a sneak peek at what is coming to us all. You need to look at Judgment Day and realize that you will give an account for how you live. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. 
We must give an account to God and God sees it all and we will reckon it all to us. But materialism distracts us from this reality. We're simply pursuing the next big thing. We're simply, simply trying to appease ourselves and it numbs us, it desensitizes us to think that we should only live for ourselves. But we should not be mistaken. God is not mocked. He will have the final say. God will call all of us to an account. But the sixth reason that we must beware of materialism is because materialism prepares you for ultimate loss. Materialism prepares you for ultimate loss. The end of verse 20, he says, the things that you have prepared, this is God speaking, whose will they be? The things that this man worked hard to produce, his money, his wealth, his barns, they're all going to be ripped away. And so God asked the rhetorical question, whose will they be? And this man has to answer, I don't know. But at the end of the day, he knows one thing, they're not going to be his. This is the truth of all possessions, is that whoever they end up going to, they don't get to stay with you. Whose will they be? Not yours. This man prepared a lot of things, but he didn't prepare for death. He didn't prepare for eternity. We need to remember that in that final day, that all the things that we've accumulated are going to be stripped away from us. All the things we buy, all the things we do to our homes and our cars, all the clothes, accessories, gadgets, all that stuff is going to be gone. We will leave nothing behind. We can take nothing with us when we die. And we need to remember that. I've been struck by this principle as our family likes to go to estate sales. I grew up going to estate sales with my mom. I like to do that today. Find things made in another era. And, but it's, it's a sobering walk through a house when an estate sale is on and you realize that all of their stuff is left right where it was when they passed away. They didn't take one thing with them. Everything stays. Now, this idea that everything that we have stays and we can take nothing with us can either lead you to depression or lead you to ask the question, how, what can I do that will last? How do, I, how do I live the right way? How do I invest my money and time in something that will outlive me? How do I avoid the fate of this man? Well, Jesus closes out the parable by answering that question and it leads us to the seventh and final danger of materialism. The seventh and final danger of materialism. Materialism trains you to prioritize the wrong things. Materialism trains you to prioritize the wrong things. Look at verse 21. Jesus concludes, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The author John Blanchard has said this. He said, Materialists know the price of everything but the value of nothing. Materialists know the price of everything but the value of nothing. You see, the value of things become clear when we see it in light of eternity. We see it in light of death and judgment. The man of the parable illustrated what it means for someone to lay up treasure for himself and not be enriched towards God. Materialism taught him to seek for pleasure in accumulating stuff and it trained him to prioritize only himself. 
If you look back through the parable, he says, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. I will say to my soul. He's very focused on himself. And in the end, this is tragic. Not only did he not get to bless other people, but it was spiritual suicide. He tried to please himself, and he ended up empty-handed. And the fate of this man is the fate of all those who live for themselves. Again, it prompts us to ask the question, how do we get out of this rat race? How can we be freed from materialism? How can we avoid the fate of this rich fool? Friends, the answer is Jesus himself. Only Jesus can save us from sin. Sins like greed, materialism, and covetousness. Only Jesus paid for our sins upon the cross. All the wrath of God that would be poured out upon us for our selfish and ungodly living was poured upon Christ. He bore the punishment that you and I deserve so that we can be free today. Be freed from our sin, not only from the punishment of sin, but be freed from the power of sin today. And that means the power of greed and covetousness in our lives now. We don't have to be controlled by this like everybody else does. We can be freed from it. Only Jesus offers forgiveness for our sin. We have all failed in some way to allow materialism into our hearts and lives. We've all failed in some way coveting what other people have and we simply need to confess those sins before our merciful Savior who has paid the penalty for our sins and offers forgiveness to all who come to him. Go to Jesus this morning. He is the answer for our grasping hearts, for our sinful hearts. It's only by trusting in his death, burial, and resurrection that you will be able to face God on the night that your soul is required of you. This reality that, that you and I must face, stand before God, we don't have the luxury of knowing ahead of time like this man did. This man could have repented, theoretically. If he knew that this night, in a few hours, his soul would be required of him, if in a minute he knew his soul would be required of him, he could repent. Friends, we don't know when our final day will come. We don't have advance warning. And therefore, we must get right with the Lord today, right now, while we, today is called today, while we know that we have time. God is being patient with you. Turn to him. Trust in him. And know that you'll find mercy and forgiveness. And he'll break you free of the grip of those things that pull us in, particularly the sin of greed. You see, no other plea will work on that day. We can't read this passage and think that, oh, I'll just clean up my act. I'll just be more frugal. Or I'll just be more generous. I'll give to more charities. Friends, no amount of good works will be able to be a right plea on that judgment day. When you stand before the judge, the only plea is that you've trusted in Jesus. You've trusted in him. Don't rely upon your good works. Don't rely on what you may have done with your money. Praise God if you've handled it well. Your only plea before the judge is Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, Paul says this. For the love of Christ controls us. 
Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Friends, the calling of the church, the calling of the believer is to look at the gospel, to look at all that Jesus did for you, and then to live out of that and to live selflessly. As the Savior lives selflessly for you, the love of Christ controls what you do with your money so that you aren't using it to live for yourself, but you're using it to bless others, to give to the Lord and the gospel work. It's his resources to begin with, right? And we're simply giving it back to him. And in that, we will be rich toward God. To be rich towards God means that you're, you're Christ-centered with your money. It means that you begin with the gospel and recognize the greatest gift that you've been given and that then you want to give out of the satisfaction that you have in Christ. Everything else can come and go because you have him and he's worth more than the whole world. C.S. Lewis said this, he who has God and everything has no more than he who has God alone. Friends, we have God alone and we have everything that we need. Praise be to him. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, we are convicted as we read these words that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And yet how tempted we are to think that they do. We think that if we get more stuff, we'll be, more, we'll be happier Father, th this world and our society is constantly knocking at our door, door of our hearts, getting us to spend more on ourselves. And so I pray that you would allow the gospel to transform us, to give us new eyes and a new heart, to give us a new goal in how we use and spend and save our money. That we aren't looking to accumulate here on earth, but we're looking to lay up in heaven. May we live radically for the glory of Jesus Christ. And it's his, his name we pray. Amen.